Welcome back to the Six P's podcast. It is fantastic to have your company once again. As we continue our look at Rosalie Ham's The Dressmaker, which is one of our comparative texts for this semester. If you would like to get in touch, you can do so at six P's podcast at gmail.com. That's six PS podcast at gmail.com. And don't forget to check out the YouTube channel as well. Simply search for 6P's podcast or even VCE English into YouTube. You'll be able to find plenty of videos there. And I'm always happy to get feedback through those channels as well. And make sure, of course, that you subscribe. Now we're going to get straight into part two of The Dressmaker. And this is called Shantung. So the first part was called Gim. This is called Shantung. I've done my research. It is an irregular textured material, which represents the townspeople as Tilly tries to transform them with her dressmaking. And this is what this section is all about, is Tilly's dressmaking skills being utilized by the town to transform them, but to an extent as well, her getting shunned by them. It's interesting to note that Shantung is quite a coarse material from what I've researched, and it's just like the women who are hard to handle because they are fueled by competitiveness and jealousy and they all want to one-up each other. Hence, they get Tilly to make their dresses for them for the footballer's ball. So chapter 10 begins with Sergeant Farrett taking a bath. A herbal bath, in fact. He's got um, some nice smelling stuff in there. And uh, we get this picture of him being in solitude and him quite enjoying that. He's thinking about a dress and he's wearing pink socks. And I like the contrast here between appearance and reality, um, especially when he's wearing his police uniform with the pink socks. I think there's something to be said about his inner desires and, and secrets and the way that he balances those two parts of, of his life. Beulah is knocking on the door, as always. Uh, it's nice. She's full of hate and accusations. This is a quote. She's full of hate and accusations about the goings-on at the dance. She deemed the behavior... Vile and repulsive. She, of course, is quite a conservative individual as well, as we know. So even though she's happy to spy on people, she is quite conservative. In the same chapter, Ruth Dim continues to go through Tilly's mail. She's snooping. She actually finds uh, a letter that's written in Spanish, which I think is quite nice. It emphasizes Tilly's worldliness and I guess the small-minded nature of the community. And again, we talk about this community being quite insular and lacking any sort of um, introspection and awareness of of the world. Um, she also comments on her dress. This is Ruth commenting on Tilly's dress, that she didn't hide a thing, that everyone was speechless with disgust, and that she's up to no good again, that one, worse than her mother. And it's interesting to note that quotation because it goes to show that the subjugation of women is not just by men, but also by other women. Women subjugating other women and and. and Think about, it's quite ironic, the way they treat Councilman Pettyman as opposed to Molly and Tilly. Lois, too, you'll note, is gossiping, and she's using this really unrefined and harsh dialect, again, to represent that idea of social status. Chapter 11, we are at the races, which is good. If you know anything about small country towns, you'll know that uh, a race meeting or race carnival, plays an important part to a lot of country communities. And when I think of the races at Dungata, I'm thinking about places like Penshurst, Nil, 
Menangatang, Gunbower, all small towns in, in sort of northern and western Victoria that hold sort of one race meeting a year. Um, even if you think about a place like Dunkeld, which is in the foothill of the Grampians, it's got a tiny population of you know a couple of hundred, but there's 10,000, 12,000 people that go there for this one race day a year. Um, and it's a really massive social event that brings the town and the community together. Now, Teddy uses Barney to invite Tilly, his brother Barney, to invite Tilly to the races, and this works. Tilly ends up saying yes to that. At the races, Elspeth and Alvin talk, and once again, he raises the family's accounts, the fact that the Beaumonts owe a lot of money. Of course, they're soon to be in-laws too, with Gertrude and William becoming quite close. Tilly is getting ready, and I'll note the description, the fact that her arms were bare and the the dress pulled firmly across her thighs. It is made of shantung as well. That's on page 105. So she's, again, the dress, her dress sense is quite progressive. Some of you might know of a model called Jean Shrimpton who arrived to the Melbourne Cup in the 60s without wearing gloves. And that caused quite a stir. In fact, she had her hair down. She wasn't wearing gloves um, and she had a sleeveless dress. And it, it, there's a really good photo. If you type in Jean Shrimpton Melbourne Cup, you'll see the shocked looks of the women in the background. It's, it's quite something. But it's nice to reflect on, on the dress sense at the time. It was extremely conservative. And once again, the town are staring at Tilly. And it says, it was the purple dress. They were discussing Tilly's dress. She looked like some someone out of a movie, and the air around her seemed different. So again, this idea that she is very much different. Gertrude, I will note, snipes at Tilly. Um, she says, Myrtle Dunnage and there's mixed whinies, they deserve each other. William says to Tilly, says of Tilly that she's quite beautiful, and Gertrude pulls him away, quite concerned that William is interested in her. While we're on Gertrude... And William, that night, um, they actually start making out and um, in the back of a car, but Gertrude rejects his desire for sexual intercourse. William suggests to Elspeth that he wants to marry Gertrude, who collapses. She says, you can't marry her. She's a heifer. But um, William ends up going to Alvin Pratt. Um, he ever actually says... It's either her or Tilly Dunnage, which I think is quite interesting. But it goes on to say that on page 109, William went to see Alvin Pratt the next day. And by evening, all had been arranged for William to marry down. I like that idea. Thus reinstating his mother to her rightful place. It's a great quotation for a number of reasons. Firstly, this idea of marriage being arranged and the idea of why people get married. It's not just for love. It's for other reasons as well. The fact that he marries down. I think is really interesting, again, to showcase this idea of social status. Elspeth, of course, gets reinstated to her rightful place. We know that she's a farmer's daughter. We know that she married up and now through William, who she was hoping would marry um, and go outside of Dungata to find suitable companionship. Again, he ends up marrying down. We'll move to chapter 12 now. And uh, Tilly actually agrees to making Gertrude's dress. There's a great, there's a lot of quotations to describe Gertrude, her physical description, um, but it's one that's not very positive and again goes to show that she's someone who is quite, you know, um, 
more so a practical sort of woman. The quote that I like uh, comes up, says that Gertrude had a waist Tilly could emphasize, which would also help her hips. Then there was the square bottom and shapeless downpipe legs and matching arms. And under that cardigan, Gertrude was her stute, which means hairy. So bare skin with that, it was out of the question. She also had a pigeon chest. And again, it doesn't paint a positive picture of Gertrude physically. What's interesting about that is Tilly ends up transforming her. And we'll get to it later on in the next chapter, but it is Gertrude's physical appearance that calms William down. Um, he ends up getting feeling cold feet to an extent on the wedding day, but Tilly's able to transform her from someone who is not physically desirable to someone who is. Molly ends up later on in Chapter 12 striking Tilly just as Teddy arrives to invite them to Christmas. Molly agrees to go down, but Tilly declines, and there is a clear strain in their relationship. And then we get to chapter 13, which is Gertrude and William's wedding. As you can imagine, Elspeth refuses to take any part in the planning. Lucky for her, and lucky for William, Elvin decides to restore the family's credit account at the store. William is very keen, and I like this because it comes up later on in the text, he's very keen to read a Shakespeare poem at the wedding, but Gertrude doesn't quite seem to understand it. And we also know that later on that Mona doesn't seem to know who Shakespeare was either. We obviously know that Tilly does, and we get that little bit of a connection between William and Tilly, two people who understand the outside world and who have a bigger view of the world. William, after this, has, sort of has second thoughts about marrying um, he wants to put it off, but Gertrude sort of cries and she ends up getting her way. And William, as I said before, is reassured by Gertrude's physical appearance. In fact, the quote from page 118 said that Gertrude Pratt looked curvy and succulent and she knew it. And the idea that he sort of, for uh, William, he took a deep breath and opened his eyes to look down the aisle and the deep lines across his brow fell away and the color rose in his cheeks, his shoulders relaxed and he bounced on his toes. Nerves, it had all been nerves. She looked lovely. So it's Tilly's, um, Tilly's transformational skills that allow that. It's interesting too because we talk about marriage and this idea about marriage for convenience, marriage for love, marriage for acceptance. I think it's something that you can definitely explore in a lot more detail in your writing. Um, and I think that William and um, Gertrude's Relationship and marriage, you can contrast the relationship between Tilly and Teddy, also potentially that of John and Elizabeth Proctor in The Crucible. Now, some of the women aren't invited to the wedding, uh, including um, characters like Beulah and the Pickets and the Dims. It's an interesting quote from Gertrude because she says, We'll have councilmen and Marigold Pettymen and the sergeant but we needn't bother with the others. Again, this idea about social class. Now, as we know, Gertrude looks beautiful in her dress. However, Tilly is not recognized for that. In fact, there's no acknowledgement that Tilly made the dress. And we get that flashback from this, which is the most important, I think, the most important part of this chapter, which is Tilly recounting what happened between her and Stuart Pettyman in the schoolyard. She was um, bullied by Stuart. He was going to run into her. They obviously were in, at the same school together. 
He is, of course, Stuart Payman is, of course, Evan and Marigold's son. And he says to her, Stuart says to her, I'll kill your mother, the slut, and when she's dead, I'll get you too. We get this idea of the fact that it's not just the adults who ridicule and torment Myrtle or Tilly. It was also in her childhood, the other kids too. It's interesting as well because we get these three short, sharp sentences at the end of this flashback when Stuart goes to run at Tilly and she says she decided to die. Then she changed her mind and she steps sideways. She ends up surviving and Stuart ends up running into a brick wall and subsequently dying. This, of course, is... We understand the reason why the town is so resentful towards her, especially Marigold and Evan. The wedding night of William and Gertrude really lacks passion. We get that really nice scene where Gertrude is looking at herself in the mirror and she says, I am Mrs. William Beaumont of Winsep Swept Crest. She's really trying hard to gain, I guess, that title. Um, she also describes herself as having an unremarkable, being an unremarkable brunette with quiver thighs and unbeautiful breasts and the idea of how she views herself. Does she in fact see herself as being Mrs. William Beaumont or does she need to build up within herself? We're going to find out later on that she ends up changing her name. Their wedding night, as I said, lacks passion. Um, it's interesting to note that something similar happens between Mona and Leslie for different reasons, of course. We might talk about why and perhaps the reasons behind them getting married, the reasons why they lack passion. The next morning, um, Gertrude again is described as Mrs. William Beaumont. She's quite assertive. She has a go at the curtains in her room. Um, and Elspeth says, well, they were quite, perfectly adequate for me, but um, Gertrude wants to get her way. And she's given a blank check by her father um, to go to Melbourne and do some shopping. We're going to leave it there for now. We're going to go to our first song. The theme today is rain because we are in the middle of winter and it's been quite a wet June. But on the other side of this, we're going to go through the remaining chapters from part two of The Dressmaker. We'll be right back after this. Two. 
Welcome back to the Six Piece Podcast. We're going through part two of the dressmaker. Shantung is what it's called. Then we're up to chapter 14, which is um, a short, sharp chapter that sort of describes the cyclical nature of the town's agricultural farming, which um, there are descriptions about the wheat and the sorghum as well. Um, take note about the sorghum. That comes up later on. Again, just like the Salem in, in the Crucible, this is an agricultural town. This is a farming town, agrarian society, you might say. Uh, Tilly gets some customers too. There's Obviously, word goes round that it was Tilly that made the dress, um, but there's even some sniping from Beulah and Marigold. She can't seem to really shake that off. Now, chapter 14, 15 is interesting because it, it, it it's a nice... It opens with a nice description of the town, which Tilly has transformed. The quote says that every hemline was now in keeping with current European fashion, and that's in stark contrast to the beginning of the text, where there was much more conservative dress sense. Gertrude has decided to change her name to Trudy, and we can see here that this is her idea about changing again or fitting into that class system. She has a new name, therefore she has a new identity, she has a new social status. It's all about the new Trudy. She starts a new committee with Elspeth called the Dungata Social Club, but they pronounce it Dungata, again, avoiding the phrase Dung. Um, again, it's, it's all about that pronunciation and about providing a bit more class to the town. Elspeth is not exactly pleased to now be related to Muriel Pratt. I like the quote where she says, Hello, Muriel. She says, A little clenched of dentures. And Alvin chimes in when they go back to the store after coming back from Melbourne, and he says that he's now owed some money by Mrs. Beaumont's. Once again, Elspeth becomes quite upset. On page 135, it says, She shoved the leaflets at Muriel and looked blackly at her new daughter-in-law because um, she was only provided, well, Alvin said that he only only had enough money to pay for some of Gertrude's things. I like later on we get this quotation about Septimus Crescent, who is a really minor character. We barely see him. He's actually a flat earther. He doesn't believe the earth is round. But it says, Septimus moved towards the door. In this town... A man can covet his neighbor's wife and not get hurt. But to speak the truth can earn you a bleeding nose. I think that's really interesting because he seems to point out the hypocrisy of the town. And it's really nice to connect to the crucible because, of course, John Proctor cheats on his wife and is internally anyway disgusted with himself and feels his sense of guilt. But in this society, you actually don't, you know, you don't get... um, tormented or condemned for this behavior um but speaking the truth does get you in trouble and this idea about truth and appearance and 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 even lying as well is quite prominent throughout the crucible and something that i would definitely encourage students to discuss tilly gets more business which is great for her um, but it's fueled to an extent um, by jealousy on page 142 it says that she noted the members of the newly formed Dungata Social Club had acquired an accent overnight, an enunciated Dungata interpretation of queenly English. As customers, the demands were simple. I've got to look better than everyone else, especially Elspeth. They want to get. They want to be better dressed than her. Basically, they want to um, stand out from her. 
Please know as well, it's a really good description about how Chile has transformed the town. It's not just what they're wearing that's changed, it's also the way they speak. The end of this chapter, um, we're introduced to Leslie Munkin, who's hired to teach Mona to ride horses. Mona, once again, is very much in the background here. She's taken the back seat now that uh, William and Trudy are married. And Trudy has announced that she's pregnant. Chapter 16, are only a couple more to go in this section, but... We note the friendship that builds between Sergeant Farrett and Tilly, one that is based on fashion. And I really like this back and forth they have where she says, uh, where she says, how do you feel about ruffs and flounces? And he says, I hate them. So do I, she said. They build this relationship based on, well, predominantly on, on fashion, really. Trudy has organised croquet for the town, but is nervous that her mother will make an appearance. She's quite embarrassed by her, actually, um, which I really like. And the fact that, again, she's called Trudy, and the idea that um, Muriel, her mother, calls her Gert, and she goes, Trudy, my name is Trudy, I keep telling you. And Muriel says, they don't live in Turak, they live next door, Paran. Muriel said abruptly, took up her stool, and tossed the paper bag into Trudy's lap. I ought to know I'm South Yarra born and bred. Muriel limped away with her sandal swinging in her hand and skirt stuck between her buttocks. She watched the ground pass between her feet. My own daughter has turned into the sort of person I moved here to avoid. So Muriel actually, she said she's South Yarra born and bred. She is quite from, from, from the upper classes. And she's moved away from that to Dungatar to escape that. But her daughter has turned into that classist individual. So the croquet match ends up turning into football. So Elspeth and Mona's desire to bring class to the town backfires on them. A little bit like Tilly and the way she tries to dress the women of the town. It's all appearances. It's all external. The presentation night for the social club sees many of the women dressed up. The quote says they've been renovated, European touched, advanced to almost avant-garde by Tilly Dunninch. Mona and Leslie duck out to fix her dress, but when she returns, her dress is inside out and the town assumes a scandal. They assume that they've been quite uh, lascivious outside, they've been intimate. Nice linking with the Crucible and Salem here about the way characters act. Tilly and Teddy go to the movies instead of going to presentation night. They're joined by Molly and their friendship continues to strengthen. Chapter 17 begins with Mona and Leslie getting married. Uh, they get married as a way to solve everything. That's a quote on page 159. Obviously, that's to um, abate the rumours that they there was a bit of a scandal between Mona and Leslie at the presentation night. It says, Trudy says, it's either that or you leave town. And again, those social expectations, the fact that um, sex before marriage was definitely frowned upon, particularly, um, we see that through uh, Molly. On the wedding night, Leslie is more interested in Mona's nightwear than with Mona herself, and in fact, he calls her nightwear gorgeous. He gets her drunk, and she passes out, and much like William and Trudy, their wedding night lacks passion, and there's that um, inference that Leslie is homosexual. The next day, Elspeth ends up disowning Mona and says that she's Leslie's responsibility now on page 162. On, we know as well, I should say, that Elspeth has been particularly fixated on using William as a way to build her social profile and that she doesn't really care about Mona. 
An outsider arrives in Dungatara on page 165. She's quite amazed by the fashion. The quote is, She wondered how Paris had found its way to the dilapidated confines and neglected torsos of banal housewives in a rural province. And there's a bit more envy for Tilly on page 167. It says, and this is coming from Beulah, She always saves the best for herself, and that the women turn to look up at the hill, and narrowed their eyes. So even though Tilly is making these dresses for them, they still make snipes at her. But once again, they're looking up at her. And that idea, or that symbolic hill, which symbolizes, of course, the moral high ground that Tilly has over the town. As the footballer's ball approaches, Tilly is very much in high demand for her haute couture dressing. She's dressing the women individually. And she gets a bit frustrated because she says this is a town of round shoulders and splayed gates, the fact that physically they're quite unattractive. Leslie and Mona have a discussion and decide to stick it out together because Leslie's, quote, got no family and friends and the fact that, as Mona says, no one else wants them. Mona, Leslie says, you haven't got a true friend in the world and neither have I. It's loneliness and isolation and the convenience that ensures they stay together, which really is quite sad. But again, that's how they have to survive in this town um, as part of the codes and conventions. Now to our last chapter for this section, it's chapter 18. And it's interesting to note um, the description of the Dungatarian women. I don't think it's a demonym, the women of Dungatar. Uh, it says they've grown ears. They think they're classy, and you're not doing them any good. These new clothes, this is Teddy who says that, these new clothes have encouraged a sense of entitlement and arrogance. And there's a nice quote later on from Tilly that says, They think I'm not doing you any good. Everyone likes to have someone to hate. And Molly says, But you want them to like you, said Molly. They're all lies, sinners, and hypocrites. That's a great quotation to describe them. And you can sort of use that quote to think as well, especially the, this idea of sinners and, and being sinful with John Proctor in the Crucible. Now, the footballer's ball comes around and Tilly and Teddy attend together. There's a great quote that Tilly says. She says, he was her good friend and he was her ally. They form this really nice bond and they end up kissing. Now, the women from outside of Dungatar have arrived from Winyup and Ithika, and they wonder who has made the dresses that all the Dungatar women are wearing. But they say to them that that's their secret. Again, it's a little bit of irony there. They refuse to let them know. Perhaps why? Firstly, because um, they don't want to share, um, but also perhaps because they're embarrassed about who it is. Marigold wins the Bell of the Ball title, and Beulah, who is very jealous, and in fact, Beulah, who's wearing a green dress, and we know from Rear Window that that symbolizes envy reveals to Marigold that Evan is Tilly's father. Tilly, unfortunately, goes to find her name in the seating chart, but cannot find it anywhere. In fact, she notices that her name has been scrubbed out. Not only is that physical, it's also metaphorical as well. They don't want anything to do with her. She's actually attacked. So Councilman Evie, Councillor Evan Pettyman on page 183 turned to her, snorted and spat at the floor near her hem. On page 184, Beulah smiled and said, Bastard, murderer, then pulled the door shut. 
Teddy goes to comfort her. And later on in page 194, it says he stroked her and soothed her and told her that it wasn't her fault, that nothing was her fault, that everyone was wrong. And in the end, they made close and tender love and then they slept. They consummate their relationship and he proposes to her. Teddy then later on jumps into a grain truck going against Tilly's wish. However, wheat is not what is in the grain truck. It's in fact sorghum. And we'll go on later on to find out that unfortunately that Teddy has passed away. That's all we've got time for on the 6Ps podcast today. But thanks for joining me once again as we looked at part two of The Dressmaker and Shantung. If you would like to get in touch, you can do so via email at 6Ps at gmail.com. That's 6Ps podcast at gmail.com. As I said, feel free to check out the YouTube channel by searching for 6Ps podcast. But... Until next time, I've been Jim Session. This has been the Six Piece Podcast, reminding you that proper prior preparation prevents poor performance. Are we finished? Done. <laughs> <laughs>